Well, good morning. Great to see all your happy faces out there. I, uh, I was driving in this morning. It's 6.30, and my thermometer said 10 degrees. And I thought it could be worse. We could be in Buffalo. <laughs> I'll, also, I'll also be honest. When I found out that the Bills game got moved to Detroit and tickets were only $10... I thought, how could I get John Malstead to speak? But then I thought, no, 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 no. I love you guys way too much to ever do anything crazy like that. So if you've got a Bible, we are going to head today to the book of Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to remind you on Tuesday of this week, we do have our annual Thanksgiving worship gathering from 7 until 8 right here in our main sanctuary. Uh, every Tuesday before Thanksgiving, uh, we gather together just for a time of worship, uh, an encouraging word, and communion as we begin our Thanksgiving week. So I hope you join us for that. Uh, we also do take an offering at that service, and we do give the whole thing away to a community organization, a local organization uh, this year. Uh, we, our missions team has decided to give that to Casa Guadalupe, uh, which is an educational center that helps people learn English. Uh, they are helping refugees right now learn English, so all the offering will go to them this year. So now as we begin, let's just take a moment and, uh, and uh, quiet ourselves. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So maybe you came in today with a need or a dream or a hope or something you'd like God to do for you. So let's just take a minute and offer all those things to him. We're grateful that you are a God who hears. You are a God who answers in a way that brings honor to yourself. That you do work all things together for good. For those who love you and are called by your name. And so now as we've gathered together or for watching online, we offer our prayers to you, O oh God, knowing that you hear, knowing that you care and respond, that you're faithful and compassionate. Now over the next few moments, would you help us to be keenly aware of your presence that's all around Help us to receive your word, the words of scripture, the words of life. And would you help us to take those words in and shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. Amen. So I want to live the good life. Anybody else want to live the good life? In a few weeks, we will celebrate Christmas. We'll have our seven worship gatherings on December 23rd and December 24th. We will celebrate the birth of Christ. And then on December 25th, I will get up. 
I will get into my van, drive to Chicago O'Hare, and fly south to Florida and spend a week sitting under palm trees, sipping something cool, play a couple of rounds of golf. The good life. That's an odd odd phrase, isn't it? The good life. I mean, what does that actually mean? Live the good life. I mean, it's really personal. It's all a matter of perspective because we all have a different idea of what it means to live the good life. I mean, I have a description. You have a description. I mean, for me, it doesn't just mean sitting under palm trees in Florida, but it means, I guess, having nice things, a nice home, um, a happy family, that my health is good. But like you, not only do I want to live the good life, but I want to be a good person. I want to do good things. But what does it actually mean to be good? Does it simply mean not committing crimes? Is that a good person? Does it mean being nice or generous? Is that a good person? Does it mean taking care of my family or following a specific moral code? Is that what it means to be good? And we use that word good as a very common descriptor. Like I have good kids. I have good dogs most of the time. Good morals. I like good food. But the way that we use good and the way the Bible uses the word good good are often significantly different. See, in the Bible, the word good is a bit more weighty, a bit more specific. So this weekend, we're going to take a look at that word as we wrap up uh, the book of Nehemiah. Now, I I realize that three weeks uh, doesn't really do justice to the, the, the richness of what is contained in the book of Nehemiah. But th- this week we're going to, to wrap it up as Nehemiah kind of concludes his journey of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. If you remember, Nehemiah uh, is a Jew. Uh, Nehemiah was a man who was faced with an impossible situation, but he, he exemplified extraordinary leadership. Uh, Nehemiah was the child of Jews that were born in captivity. Right around the year 512 BC, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by a king named Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. The city was left in rubble, the wall was destroyed, and the Jewish people, those that were not killed, were taken into captivity in Babylon. And so hundreds of years have passed, Nehemiah is born in Babylon, and though he's Jewish, he lives in that city and he serves the king as the cupbearer, which is one of the most trusted positions in all of the kingdom. He is the man that tastes the king's wine before he consumes it to make sure it is not poisoned. So while Nehemiah is living really in the lap of luxury, he's living the good life, really. When he gets word that not only is the city of Jerusalem not rebuilt, but its people are living in open shame. And as he hears the words of the plight of his people, he weeps and he mourns and he prays for four months. And then when he ends that time of prayer and weeping and mourning, he goes before the king, a king now named Artaxerxes, whom he serves. He says to to his king, I'm going to need some time off. 
because I need to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, the sacred city of my people. And when the king asks, how long will you be gone? He says roughly 12 years and I need it to be a paid vacation. And not only do I need 12 years off, O king, but in order to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, I need you to pay for it. Which is ironic because just a few years prior, that same king put a halt to the Jews who tried to rebuild it the first time. But this time, the king gives them 12 years off and gives them enough money to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And though there are challenges, we talked about some of those last week, the work is complete. Nehemiah goes back to Babylon to serve the king. But while he's gone, society starts to drift. Though the wall around Jerusalem has been rebuilt, the wall around the people's hearts begins to crumble and they start to turn away from God. So Nehemiah goes back. And when Nehemiah sees the way in which the people have drifted, He gets frustrated. He gets irritated. So much, in fact, that in verse 25, I love how raw and human the Bible is. Verse 25 says, when Nehemiah returned, he writes, I rebuked them, his people. I rebuked them. I called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. (laughs) I love that passage. It's just so honest. You ever been so frustrated at someone you just wanted to beat them and pull out their hair? That's what he does. This story, however, is not so much about the building of a wall as it is about the rebuilding of a people. Their spirituality, their society, their moral boundaries. Nehemiah is more a redemption story than a construction story. And so as we come to this last chapter, chapter 13, Nehemiah prays a series of prayers. And in those prayers, he uses this phrase that he repeats three times. And the phrase is, remember me, O God. The first time he uses it is in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 14. He prays, remember me for this, my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. That that word faithful is the Hebrew word has said. It usually is a reference to God's steadfast love, his faithfulness. So when Nehemiah prays this prayer, he's saying, Lord, I have, I have extended to your people steadfast love. Remember me for that. Then he goes on in verse 31. He says, remember me, remember me now, God, with favor. Now, I suppose the phrase, remember me, begs the question, does God forget and therefore need reminding? And the answer is no, God does not forget. What Nehemiah was was praying was, would you, oh God, keep me at the forefront of your mind? This phrase, remember me, is a figure of speech that compares God's memory to a slate on which one's good deeds are recorded. So as Nehemiah prays this prayer, as he looks back over all of the work, over all of the sacrifice, over all of the effort that he has extended on behalf of his people, he says, God, I've, gave it, I've given it my best. I've offered you my very best. So now would you remember me? Would you let this work continue? Remember me with favor. Now, Nehemiah is not asking that God rewards him. 
See, by promoting the welfare of his people, he was advancing God's cause and leading God's people back to their original intent. So when he asks God to remember him with favor, he's asking God to literally remember him for good. Now that phrase, for good, is the Hebrew word tov. It's a significant word. The first time the word tov, or the word good, is used in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, in which God overlooks his creation and calls it good. He calls it tov. Now, the Hebrews often relate descriptions of words to their functionality. See, tov is a functional word. When God uses the word good, he's not just talking about the way something looks, but how it functions. When he looks at creation and calls it good, he says, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's also functioning properly. Now you realize things can be beautiful, but not functional. So the Hebrew word tov means that something is capable of presently engaged in the process of and destined for completely fulfilling its divine purpose for which it was created. When it does that, it's tov, it's good. So it's opposite then, the opposite of the word tov is the word ra in the Hebrew language. We translate it as evil, but it actually means dysfunctional or not working properly. And when something's not working properly, what do we do? Well, we get frustrated, don't we? Because we like things to work properly. I have this desk in my home office that I purchased. It is a beautiful desk. It's simple, but it fits perfectly in the space that I put it in. It matches the whole office. But the middle desk drawer randomly just slides open. It is so frustrating. I'll slam it back in and then it will slide back open pushed it back in. I've tried to fix it. I can't get it to stop. And it's irritating because it's not tov. It's not good. It's not functioning properly. When we go back to the creation story in the book of Genesis, creation like unveils for us what tov is, what goodness is, and what it is not. So when we look at creation, when a tree drops seeds to the ground, but none of those seeds grow. It's not good. It's not tov. They're not functioning properly. Or if I plant a tree and the tree grows, which I suppose is good, but drops seeds to the ground and does not produce other trees, it's still not good because it's still not functioning properly, which is probably why Jesus in the New Testament compares good works to fruit. Because good works continually produce life. See, the reason why plants and trees must have seeds inside of them is so that in due time, those plants and trees will drop their seeds into the earth and further the cycle of creation, further the cycle of God's original intent, his goodness. So in the scriptures, God calls those things that are good produce life, and contain the potential for more life within. So as we go back to Nehemiah, when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, he was restoring good and allowing that city to now function properly and release the potential of life for the people in the city. You see, there's a huge chasm 
between the way I use the word good and the way the Bible uses the word good. I mean, even Jesus said that we're to judge a tree not by its height or the number of leaves it has or if it's visually pleasing, but by its fruit, what results from it, its goodness. I can plant an apple tree in my backyard. It can grow tall and lush. It can look beautiful. But if it doesn't produce apples, it's not fulfilling its purpose. I can go in the same way to church. I can go every week. I can read the Bible. I can participate in a small group. But if my life isn't producing life, if I'm not producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, if I'm not loving my neighbor as myself, no tov, no goodness. See, the work of Nehemiah's wall was good because it was functional. It was doing what it was supposed to do. When Nehemiah prayed, remember me with favor, he was praying, may this good work continue producing life. The reward was its functionality. So I guess that begs the question then, why do we do the good things that we do? Is it so that someone will reward us? Or notice us? Or pat us on the back? Tell us how good we are, how spiritual we are. I was overseas years ago. Uh, Northbrook partners with a ministry in India. And part of their ministry is a seminary. And so I went to India to teach at the seminary and to uh, offer education to pastors who did not have the resources to afford education. I went for a week, and it really was a gift of love. It was really hot. And while I was there, I stayed for the graduation of the seminary. So there were seminary students that were getting their degrees. And uh, there were some other pastors that were there with me uh, on this trip from other states. And we were all at the graduation together. And at the beginning of the graduation, uh, the, 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 the person that was leading the ceremony said, before we uh, award the degrees to the students, we're going to, we're going to award several honorary doctorates to some of the pastors that have visited from the United States. And what I noticed was that all of the pastors there got an honorary doctorate but me. I don't know why. But they walked up, and as they were walking up to receive their degrees, I started thinking, I know for certain their churches don't give as much money to this ministry as we do. I also know for certain that I have been here way more than these guys have been here. Why in the world would they honor them in that way and not me? And I was so mad. Can I say that? I was so mad. I'd brought some of them from Northbrook with me, and they, they kept looking at me, and they said, so are you mad? No. I was seething. I'm like, what? But then there's always that still, small voice that says, well, why do you do what you do in the first place? To get a piece of paper that doesn't really mean anything? Let's be honest, an honorary doctorate's not earned. 
Why are you so mad? Why did you come here in the first place? Was it to get accolades or was it to serve the kingdom and offer God's goodness in the world? Do we participate in God's divine goodness for our good or for his? Or, or maybe, maybe you're here this morning or, or watching online and you just don't feel any good at all. Maybe you have believed the lie of culture that tells you regularly that you're not good enough. You're not successful enough. You don't make enough money or you're not thin enough or good looking enough. Or maybe you've bought into this religious lie that you're not holy enough and worthy enough and you've got to do all these good deeds in order to gain God's favor, that you must be perfectly good before God will accept me and if you don't do good things, God will punish you. But that's not the message of the gospel. The good news, that the Tove news of the gospel reminds us that we are God's beloved and his desire is to restore his goodness in us. That is why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. See, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah rebuilt a wall to restore his people, but Jesus died on the cross to restore your life. And his sacrifice produced salvation. But not only did it produce salvation, it gave birth to the church. See, the, the church, the functionality of, of, this, of this church is God's plan for the world. That there is no plan B. See, God's, God's plan to extend his goodness into the world is his church. It is you and me. There is no plan B. We're, we're it. So what makes a church good? Like, is this a good church? Is it because the building looks nice? Is this a good church because we have good programs or good theology? Is this this a good church because um, I like the songs they sing and the preacher's okay? Like, does that make a good church? Well, the descriptors of the Bible use none of those things to describe a good church. In their book, A Church Called Tove, the author Scott McKnight writes that goodness is the executive virtue. It is the shorthand summary for how a good God wants people to live. See, the message of God's goodness is about God coming to us fully in Jesus. And therefore, a Christ-like church will always have its eyes on people because the mission of the church is all about people. See, the book of Nehemiah is not about a wall, it's about a people. At our last staff meeting that I had here at Northbrook, I gathered with our pastors, and I looked them in the eye and I said, listen, our work is not the programs. The people of Northbrook, that's our work. See, a healthy church possesses what Scott McKnight calls a goodness culture, and there are characteristics of a goodness culture that come straight from the scripture. See, churches that are good are churches that extend empathy and compassion into our world. Churches that are good extend grace and graciousness. I mean, that's the message of the cross, right? 
when Jesus was crucified and he was hanging there between two criminals, one criminal mocked him, the other one said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response to the man hanging on the cross was, today you will be with me in paradise. The man in that story did not repent of his sins. He didn't ask Jesus into his heart. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus responded by saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He extended empathy, compassion, grace, and graciousness. Because see, a good church always puts people first. But a good church also tells the truth, even when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient. Because there are some challenging things in the Bible, and we should never be ashamed or back away from those things. Because a good church tells the truth. But see, a good church, a tove church, also extends justice into the world. Do you realize the word justice is used 143 times in the Bible? And it literally means noticing something that's wrong and making it right. So I noticed something that's wrong this week. I just learned that right now, today, at this moment, around the world, we are experiencing the greatest food crisis since World War II, globally. Right now, today, there are people in Uganda that are sleeping in their gardens with their machetes for fear someone's going to steal their food. To me, that just doesn't feel right. See, I'm all concerned about inflation, they're concerned about starvation. And there's a big difference. See, a good church extends its service into the world because we want to be Christ-like. See, my desire isn't to be right. My desire is to be redemptive. So let's be good people that live the good life in a good church. For some of us, maybe uh, that means this week, as we go about our, our, our lives, as we step into the world, maybe that means extending grace and empathy and compassion to that person. You know that person I'm talking about, that person that doesn't deserve it, that person that Christ died for. Or, or maybe this week, um, we can do something maybe small as we notice something that's wrong and we make it right. Maybe that means doing something like donating to Compassion International or an organization that provides food to people who are starving around our world. It's one small step towards God's goodness. And so my prayer, oh God, uh, for this church is that we would be a good church, a tove church that would function properly. That we would be a church that is much more concerned about grace and truth and justice and Christ-likeness and truth-telling than we are about feeling good about ourselves. Help me to be a good person, that I would live and produce fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And that fruit would help me to love my neighbor as myself and perpetuate the cycle of life. Lord, you're good. Help me to live the good life. Amen. Amen.